Hey fellow nerds, welcome to Research Hole, a podcast where I talk to artists about the research holes we fall down on the way to our projects. I'm Val Howlett. And I think this is the part in the podcast where I'm supposed to beg you to rate and review us on iTunes so the algorithm will like us. It's weird because I haven't, you know, published any of these episodes yet, so... I assume it'll be on iTunes. Um, and also, I lis- I'm a very frequent podcast listener. I've listened to like a million podcasts and a million requests for you to rate and review them. And I've literally never done it. <laughs> so um, I feel weird. I felt so weird asking you to do it that this morning I went and rated and reviewed two podcasts just like as penance. So I've done it. You should do it too, you guys. All I ask is that we get above the podcast where people did like one or two episodes and then abandoned the whole project because we are on episode three. And our guest today is Lori Morrison. Lori Morrison taught middle school English for 10 years and now writes middle grade novels. She is the co-author of Every Shiny Thing and the author of Up for Air and Saint Ivy. She has an MFA in writing for children and young adults from Vermont College of Fine Arts and lives with her family in Philadelphia. And Lori and I actually went to Vermont College of Fine Arts together. We did grad school for writing for children and young adults together. And I'm psyched to have her on because she is one of my smartest writing friends. And I love talking with her about granular writing stuff And I've also had the pleasure of watching her writing and career develop from school to publishing, which is super cool. Um, So welcome, Lori. Thank you, Val. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah. I think by the time this podcast publishes, your third book will just be coming out. So congratulations. Thank you. Do you know the pub date? Yes, it's May 18th. Yeah, so I think this will be right around the week it comes out. Oh, perfect. Um, so why don't you tell us about this this book? Um, sure. Just a little bit about what it's about. Sure. So um, the book is called St. Ivy, and it is about a 13-year-old girl named Ivy Campbell who prides herself on being kind. And so she wants to be 100% supportive when her mom becomes pregnant as a gestational surrogate. Um, She wants to be totally on board, and she's kind of surprised and ashamed to find that she has a pretty complicated reaction to the pregnancy. Um, And around the same time, she starts getting these anonymous emails from someone who seems to need her help. And so she throws herself into helping this anonymous person because that makes her feel like her kind, generous self again. But really, the further she um, dives into helping this anonymous person, the further she gets from the people who love her and the person she wants to be. Ugh. Lori, it ties up my heartstrings already. Aw, thank you. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of your protagonists deal with some level of intense striving or intense yeah. self-doubt yeah and that that hits close to home for me I had like a whole complex especially as like at at the age your protagonist is like 13 about whether I was good and mm-hmm. being good 
Yeah, I mean, that's a huge thing for this character, Ivy, but really for all my characters. I mean, Ivy is like, she's a kid who, before she started middle school, she thought she was a good student. She thought um, she was a good piano player and she was funny and maybe she could be good at soccer. And then she started middle school at a pretty competitive school where other people were better at some of these things. And she basically feels like she doesn't really have a thing. And so she throws herself into being kind because that's the thing she gets the most praise for. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a book about, like, just sort of embracing all the things that could make you who you are, but also that pressure to, like, know what defines you and to know what you excel at. Um, Yeah. And the nature of school, I think, especially certain, you know, private schools where you might be, like, competing with kids who have a lot of resources – at their disposal to like take lessons and things mm-hmm, for sure but I do think school in general like pushes you to feel like you have to figure out your thing really early I think so too and I mean there's obviously there's like there's joy in finding your thing too so <laughs> yeah there's so much joy in finding your thing but you know there's also so much joy in like finding something that might be your thing or might not be, um, you know, that you're just interested in whether you're great at it or not. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the past few years of my life and I'm, I'm about to be 36. (laughs) So, but I feel like only in the past few years have I come around to embracing being bad at shit and like doing it anyway, you know, like, yeah, for sure. Like, uh, yeah, I'm a grown person and that, that is a thing that took me a long time. And and I think there's, there's a lot I said I was bad at, so I wouldn't even try. And you got to push through the part where you, you fuck it up. Right. Right. Cause it's going to happen. Yeah. 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 But I, I don't know. I feel like I kind of missed that lesson as a kid. Yeah. I think a lot of us like sort of high achieving kids probably did. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see some of yourself in Ivy? Yeah, for sure. I I see a lot of myself in Ivy and I, um, in fact, I like when I was writing this book, I had a, I got really frustrated with her and I had a hard time being very compassionate with her. I think because I see so much of myself in her and my real breakthrough came when I stopped writing it in first person and switched it all to third person to give me like a slight bit of distance from her. Oh my God, that's um, fascinating. Yeah, and then it really clicked and, and then I, and from that point on, like I could write about her with so much love, but while I was like, oh, I'm so mad at myself that I do these things. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just annoyed with her that she's doing this. Um, uh, yeah, so I definitely, there's a lot of Ivy in me for sure. Yeah, it makes so much sense to me that you'd be annoyed at her. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was I was talking to someone the other day about like just the I was talking about fan fiction because I wrote a lot of Harry Potter fan fiction as um a young an an adolescent. Yeah. And um I was talking about like discovering the pure joy of writing someone who's totally different from you. Yeah. And I think I think those people who are closer are just harder, at least for me, they're harder to write. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. There so, are some secondary characters in this book who are a lot less like me and who I think like buoyed me through some of the writing because they were easier sometimes for me to write. Yeah, who was who was the most joy like who was a joy to write in this book? What character? Um, there's a girl named Lila who is like pretty annoyed with Ivy's um positivity and like desire to make everyone happy and and she's pretty blunt and but she's kind but like not on the surface and she's funny and she was just like from the beginning she was really fun for me to write that totally makes sense yeah because it would be an outlet right like (laughs) exactly you could get mad at ivy a little bit through lila right (laughs) yeah yeah oh i can't wait to read it oh thank you and so is Ivy a baker? Because your research she hole is. is going to be baking, right? Yeah, That's what Ivy we're gonna is talk a baker. About. She, you know, in very, in when I first started writing this book, um, another writer friend, Jen Bishop, who writes middle grade novels too, she read about 50 pages for me and she was like, you know, Ivy doesn't really have much that she loves doing. Like we don't see her um, comfortable and happy very much in these first 50 pages that you've written. And so I had to think about like what what would be kind of a happy place for Ivy and um, and I came to baking. I had already given her a relationship with her grandmother that I really liked. Um, and so I kind of went all the way into that and I gave her I, so she and her grandmother bake together every Friday. So she's sort of learning to bake with her grandmother and it's all wrapped up in her grandmother teaches her a recipe and like tells her the story behind the recipe basically. Ooh. Um, so so it's sort of this bonding thing with her grandmother but and she is because she's this kind person it um it worked really well for her character that she loves to bake the more she learns about baking with her grandmother the more she wants to bake for people as something that will bring them joy which is wonderful sometimes but can be a little over the top other times yeah yeah. Yeah. When you say grandma her grandma taught her the story be- behind each recipe. Do you mean like the grandma's personal story? Yeah. So like usually it's it's her grandmother um just tells her sort of like here are my tips, like here's what kind of pan to use, you know, take the foil off the top with 10 minutes left or whatever, but also like where she got the recipe. If if somebody passed it down to her or if it came from a um, you know, from a magazine or whatever. So, um, so she, so Ivy is, her grandmother sort of like is always baking and then say, her grandmother's funny too, actually. And her grandmother, Ivy says her grandmother is super morbid because she's always saying things like, when I go, these recipes go with me because I don't have anything (laughs) written down. And so, so this is Ivy's attempt. To, she think I, her grandmother's recently retired, and Ivy thinks she's lonely and kind of bored. So it's sort of, um, you know, her. It, it's a way to do something nice for her grandmother initially, but it ends so that her grandmother can pass on these recipes and feel like, you know, feel appreciated in that way. But um, it it ends up being something that brings Ivy a lot of joy, both in the she likes to bake things that make people happy way but also she really enjoys the process of baking like she really enjoys sort of the magic of how everything comes together um and she starts to enjoy like putting her own spin on recipes and combining things and that kind of thing too do are you like that yeah i am i i 
I love I love to bake too. I mean, I don't get to bake like as many um, ambitious things as I used to because I, I have small children who are with me most of the time right now. But we bake together. I bake with my kids a lot, and when I do have to, I do like to like learn a little tip of like this is a good way to make muffins rise and get like fluffy if you start the oven higher and then lower the temperature or like this can be substituted for this I do like sort of playing around like that with recipes yeah I mean I'm imagining that you tested the recipes you wrote about right or did you not yeah most of them I did um and I I would have like I had big plans for I was going to take like a certain baking class, but it was right before, right at the start of the pandemic. So it never happened. Um, but some wow, of the wow. more ambitious re- recipes, like I have not made recently, like since I have maybe made in the past, but I thought I would have, a, you know, I thought it would be sort of part of the process as I revised the book once I finally figured out the plot, which took me a long time. And the more ambitious ones have been harder to do with, you know, current life circumstances, but yeah, dude, I, the fact that you do anything is incredible. <laughs> yeah, right. The fact that you write a novel with two small children is ridiculous. Um, but but maybe maybe it could be a way back in. Um, like, okay, so Lori just finished a draft of another book, listeners. And like before we got on the podcast, she was saying how her head's in this other book. Oh, yeah, um, that's now, a good point. But now but, she has to start promoting Ivy. And it's like maybe before Ivy comes out, you could like, you could do one involved yes, recipe. Yes. Well, my kids, I we've already planned that we're going to do, their, Ivy at one point makes brookies, which are like half brownie, half cookie, basically. It's like cho- double chocolate cookie and chocolate chip cookies that kind of get like mashed together. So my kids are very excited about that, but that's like not one of the more ambitious ones. I think I think I may need to do one of the more ambitious ones too. That would be a fun thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what your situation is like yeah. in terms of like getting the time, but it, it would be really beautiful if you it got would be two nice... hours in the next three weeks yeah. to like do something really fancy. You're right. I'm gonna make it happen. Good. Well, yeah, well okay. I like it. What? So I, I could ask you things all day, but do you want to tell me what research holes yes, you fell into I with do. the food? Yes, I would love to. So I would like to tell you a bit about um, the history of cakes specifically. So the sort of the, the thing that like made me descend into the research hole that I that I went into with this book, it was apple cake was the first thing. So I, I knew that I wanted Ivy and her grandmother to make apple cake together and what I was thinking of so it's like Jewish apple cake is what I was thinking but it, it the same thing is sometimes called Dutch apple cake and is sometimes called German apple cake um, uh-huh. <laughs> and but it's basically the same thing and so I I read this article that Deb Perelman of Smitten Kitchen had written for like a different site not her regular blog Smitten Kitchen but she was basically writing about how she has a recipe on her site for her mom's apple cake, and it's, like, wildly popular. Like, it really took off, just had, like, 12,000 comments or something like that. And oh she was God. like, why is this? What what was it about this recipe, you know, that, that garnered such a reaction? And so she 
she sort of broke it down and and her post about the apple cake is is a she has a funny story about it which is that she knew her mom had always made it when she was a kid and sometimes her mom called it Jewish apple cake and sometimes her mom called it German apple cake so she was hoping to get like this deep you know probably tearjerker of a story of like how she was thinking maybe her grandparents brought the recipe from Germany as they escaped the Holocaust and then her grandmother was like her mom was like uh no like I just got this recipe from a neighbor who had clipped it out of a now defunct magazine um but but in the comments to this this blog post on her on her blog about this apple cake like so many other people knew this recipe like their families also made this recipe some of them it really had been passed down in the family some of them called it like a pennsylvania dutch apple cake some of it a german apple cake some jewish apple cake some of them had similar stories of like they thought it was a family recipe and then it turned out it was from a newspaper or from a magazine or whatever um but it seems like there isn't really consensus on like where this apple cake actually originated and all these different people from all all different parts of the country, all different cultural backgrounds make almost the identical cake. So I knew that was going to figure in the story. Um, baking is like one fairly small element of, of this book, but it's it's important. Um and so that kind of took me to thinking about like, well, what other cakes might this be true for? What other cakes might there be where there's kind of a complicated or interesting history? So the one that is in the book also is German chocolate cake. Do you know the story of German chocolate cake at all? No, tell me all about okay. it. I, does it have to do with Philly at all? Um, it doesn't. That's okay. I just wanted because of Germantown and like yeah, oh, a huge German uh, oh, that population would be interesting. and stuff. Well, so but. the thing about German chocolate cake is that it has nothing to do with Germany or anyone of German heritage. Oh. It, yeah, I know. <laughs> so it is called that because in 1852, this man named Samuel German, who in fact, <laughs> yeah, okay. who in fact came from England to the United sure. States. Worked for a baking company, like Baker and Walker or something. And up until that point, they only had unsweetened baking chocolate. And Samuel German created a sweetened baking chocolate bar that was called German's Chocolate or German's Sweet Chocolate. And then about 100 years later, in 1956, um, there was... In this, like, small-town Texas newspaper in Irving, Texas. Well, actually, I don't know if Irving's a small town. But the research I did suggests that this was, like, a fairly small-scale newspaper at first. So this woman publishes a recipe for German's chocolate cake. And it's spread. It's what we think of now as, like, German chocolate cake with the coconut and the pecan and all that. And, um... So it kind of spread and like other people, mostly within Texas, Oklahoma, like sort of that region, were making this dessert. And then the next year in June of 1957, the recipe was printed again in the Dallas newspaper. So it was like a bigger newspaper. Um, and after that, um, the baker's chocolate, the German chocolate sales of it went up 73% as this cake recipe made the rounds and... Um, 
Oh my god. Yeah, but the the other thing that's really funny, and this this man who's a food historian, um, who has passed away, but his name was Gil Marx. He did all. He has all this fascinating food history research, and um, he what he found was that, and I just think this is so fascinating that 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 recipe in the Dallas newspaper that basically went viral, you know, like before <laughs> the internet, right. but like that spread so much. It um, it actually had a, a mistake in it. So it actually said to use double the amount of the chocolate that you were really supposed to use. And then two days later, a correction was printed. Oh, my God. Wait. I so know. Did, did that just change it? Like, did everyone put double the chocolate? I don't think so. I mean, not from what I could gather. That's actually like a tiny point in St. Ivy where, like, Ivy wants to try to make it the other way and, like, see if it actually... <laughs> changes not just the taste but like the you know the consistency um but it seems like I mean from what from what I could gather it seems like the correction was printed and then like people did it the right way (laughs) but I just think that's so funny that newspaper every day because they were reading the newspaper every day (laughs) exactly so like they you know they probably cut it out and then cut out the new version and I don't know but um yeah so that is that is German chocolate cake. So those two recipes are, you know, they do feature in this in this book. But there there were like tons of other ones that have fascinating histories that I couldn't fit in. But there's just, I mean, just like the meticulous research people did to look into what was mentioned where and like there's all this fascinating stuff about Boston cream pie too, which like is not really a pie it's a cake and Uh probably is not actually from boston it's like this guy gil mark says that it's wrongly attributed to a chef at a hotel in boston and and it's wrong because people used to say when they said boston cream cake they meant like what we think of as cream puffs you know like a pastry with cream inside oh so and and he says that the actual Boston cream pie like didn't come about until more like the late 1800s and even then up until 1940 it didn't have the chocolate on top it just was served with either with nothing on top or confectioner sugar and then like ganache became popular and people started putting the chocolate on top and Betty Crocker had a version and it took off but can yeah. I tell you I am not I am not much of a baker um I have not heard – I never heard the word ganache until I started mainlining the Great British Baking oh. Show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I still don't don't fully know what it is. Yeah, I mean, there is a ganache – there is a, a ganache, an unfortunate ganache incident in St. Ivy, actually. Oh, my God, how delightful. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, creamy chocolate. You kind of can't go wrong, but it does, like, harden, which is tricky. Okay, it's a hardened chocolate. Yeah. So people, so people conflated the Boston cream puff with the Boston cake they were thinking of, and that's why I they put the so. name Boston on it. Well, that part I don't really know. I can't because it did. I I'm not sure about that part. All I know is that it it seems like if you look it up, like some places will tell you that it. Some places will say this Boston Parker House Hotel, that's where it came from. But then 
I really came to trust this Gil Marx's research, and he's yeah, says, he seems very yeah, thorough. That that's not that that's not the case. So I don't, but I don't really understand how it still somehow got linked to Boston. Yeah, um, if anyone listening knows, yeah, <laughs> fucking write in. We yes, would be delighted. Let us know. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's, like, one of the funny things about doing research. Um, yeah. Especially historical research is, like, I think before I started writing my historical fiction book, I thought that if you looked something up, if you looked hard enough, you'd find the answer. Yes, like, the one answer. Yeah, and that is not the way it goes. No. Sometimes it is. Yeah. But rarely. Yeah, and I, and I mean, I have not been as thorough a researcher as you have to be when writing historical fiction because, like, what I needed for this book was what a 13-year-old girl would be able to find, you know, or, like, would, or somebody, or her, grandma or her grandmother know. would know without stopping to look it up, just kind of, like, know anecdotally. So, um, you know, I feel like I, I, I had done... I don't know. I think I I was like not necessarily. I was looking for what has an interesting story that that works here, but I wasn't. I didn't feel like the pressure to be to to get every detail necessarily like the exact right answer because that's a whole different pressure. I don't even know when you how you know when to stop. Like how you know when you've gotten a good enough answer. Yeah, dude. I don't either. <laughs> That's why I haven't finished my book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love that. And I and I think that's right anyway, because, I mean, unless you're a baking historian. Yeah. Or I guess unless you're writing about a very specific location or era. Yeah. Like, that's how most people talk about baking anyway. Yes, yeah, true. The stories are sort of nebulous, and they're a little bit folklore- and they're like a little bit true. I really love the story of how the the German me too cake became popular. Me too. Isn't that great? And is that kinda... one you tried? Is that one you you have tested? Um, you know, I have not done the like. Have I tested that recipe? Yeah, not recently. And that is that is the one that I think I should try. That oh is my God. like. Um, I did, you know, I made a guide, like I made a discussion and activity guide for the book. So I did, I found like a pretty easy seeming German chocolate cake recipe that I put in that guide because figuring like, you know, I want to set like 10 to 14 year old kids who are going to be reading the book. I want to set them up for success. But um, yes, but I could do that like fairly uh, doable one where I could like really go for it. I don't know. I'll have to see. (laughs) If you do it, send a photo. I will, for sure. I want chocolate cake now. Oh my gosh, me too. <laughs> well, if you if you would like, if you're getting too hungry, I feel like I can spoil your appetite with my research. Do tool. it. Let's hear yes. <laughs> um, so I thought maybe since you were doing baking that I would do food stuff too. Awesome. Um, so... Mine is a little disparate. I I don't really know how to talk about food all that well. And my research into, like, old Philadelphia food is, it's mostly, like, what I gathered from anecdotes, you know? Like, in other books. Like, I, I found this one book 
um, that I use for a lot of things uh, called the Lanfear pattern. Which Lanfear? is like fear? It's it's so weird. It's spelled double L A N F E A R, oh. like fear. Okay. okay. And the land fears are like this they're like this fictional old Philadelphia family. Oh, okay. And the book The Land Fear Pattern is it's it's an out of print book. It like went out of print in the 70s. I think I I bought it eventually, but like I tried to order it from like there's a part of the Philadelphia library where they have this old book collection where you have to like order things special okay. and they have to like get them out of this weird warehouse. Oh, like wow. that's the level. Uh, this book did not stand the test of time and it's not very good. Um, <laughs> but it is very useful to me in that like the guy who wrote it, his name was Francis Biddle. Okay. And Biddle is one of the old Philadelphia like families and he was like kind of rebelling like he was like I hate I hate Philadelphia rich people culture so I'm gonna write about it and everyone was very scandalized by this book oh interesting is it like a satire or it's just like critical it's critical yeah the Lanfear pattern is ultimately that you think you're going to do something different or you think you're going to change the world, but if you stay in Philadelphia society long enough, you eventually become complacent and do nothing. Uh, okay. And that's the end of the book. Like, the guy just sort of settles in. Ah, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, yeah, but the book bummer, isn't but... that good, so you don't care that much. Oh, that's too bad. Because <laughs> <laughs> it could really be a whammy there of, like, yeah, but... I think I think Francis Biddle really meant for it to be a wham. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just dated. Like, like the whole sort of last section of it is like this guy is trying. He like wants to have an affair. Sword. He's like falling for this young woman. But eventually, he decides not to go for it. Oh, okay. Because like divorce is complicated and he can't like tear himself away from society enough okay and it's just like who cares you know yeah and like his wife is fine okay like like so you don't want him to cheat on his wife really like he's just not that likable yeah but anyway i'm going off so <laughs> so from the food land for- food so from the land for your pattern and other books like it i found like this old um sort of account of a woman's girlhood in Philadelphia. But I did like pull out some good little anecdotes about what rich people in Philly used Uh to eat. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things they ate that led me down a bit of a hole is terrapin. Hmm. Do you know what that is? Is that a bird? It's not a bird. No, I don't think I do. I'm going to send you a photo. Wait, okay. are you are you in front of your computer? Yeah, I am. I'm just going to send you a photo. Don't okay. look it up. Okay, I won't. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh! <laughs> oh, my. Okay. Oh. Yeah. What are you, what did, what did I send you for the it, listeners? It's a turtle. 
It's a beautiful turtle. It's a really beautiful turtle, and it's sticking its little head up. Oh, oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's a northern diamondback terrapin. Okay. Um, yeah, it has a beautiful like shell. And I'm trying not to be judgy yeah. because, like, I'm sure, right, different cultures do eat different things and, like, we eat weird stuff. We do. We that do. we don't think is weird, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. But also. It's what you're used to, yeah. But, aw. <laughs> it, was, it was a delicacy. Okay. Um, you had to be really rich to eat it. Okay. Um, the, uh, I have this. Okay, I'm going to read you a teeny passage from The Land Fear Pattern. Okay, let's hear it. About Terrapin. So they're at the assembly, which is like the big dance. And to be invited to the assembly, this is a real thing that continues to happen, by the way. Um, and, And was a very big deal back then. To be invited to the assembly, your family had to have been grandfathered into the assembly. Wait, there's still an assembly now? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, so it's like you have to be extremely old money to right, go to the right. assembly. And this okay. woman, Francesca, this the guy's wife, he married this Italian woman. So she she's in the she's now at the assembly for the first time and okay. she's new to Philadelphia. Okay. Um, so this guy talks to her. His name is Caru, which is weird. But anyway, he says Aren't you eating any terrapin, Miss Lanfear? <laughs> it was Carew's Acton's voice on the other side. What? Oh. She looked down at her plate. What is it? Terrapin. <laughs> Never heard of it. It's a kind of turtle very much prized by natives here. For a shining example, glance momentarily, momentarily at Mrs. Algernon Henderson Roth. She's an old terrapin eater, but not <laughs> too long. It's a little overpowering for a beginner. That lady was eating terrapin with undisguised relish, putting small bones from her eager mouth and depositing them in a circle on the edge of her plate. Francesca smiled, tried some, shivered, and put down her terrapin fork. (laughs) Oh my gosh, there was a special fork. I can't, she said. It tastes all soft and crawly. And did that doom her? Like, did everyone think she was common because she didn't like it? Oh, no, they laughed. They were okay. Okay, good. (laughs) Yeah, it was a pretty inconsequential scene. I mean, I think that's part of the reason the landfare pattern also didn't stand the test of time is, like, there's a lot of shit like that that's, like, vaguely interesting, but it's not that interesting. Yeah, not that high stakes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like interesting for Val, but like right, right. <laughs> not necessarily for the average novel reader. He just like wanted to just talk about this one culture, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that is useful for your purposes. So terrapin was a delicacy. Yeah, and I just I had to look it up some more because I wondered how like I don't know how frequently it was eaten. Yeah. Oh, I found this article about how it was an example of conspicuous consumption, um, which is a theory that the more expensive an item is, the more popular it can become. And then the price goes up again and that it gets more popular. And there's this quote from this guy who says uh, his name is, 
I don't know, who cares? This guy named Jones. He says, it means people like to show off their wealth. And that's exactly what happened to this terrapin. Once a few well-to-do people started eating it, more of their friends also did just to show others they could afford it. It was considered stylish to eat it and to let others see you eating it. Pretty soon it became so popular that its numbers declined dramatically and it became scarce in many reasons. People literally ate it to near extinction. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's a North American turtle um sort of found on the east coast like near maryland often okay um but but luckily we did not make it extinct well that's good (laughs) but that is so it like was in fashion and then it just like wasn't anymore wow and people there's the decline of terrapin being in fashion people attribute it to like two different things um, so some literature attributes the terrapin market decline to prohibition. Oh. Um, so sherry was apparently an ingredient for terrapin stew. Okay. An essential ingredient. And, you know, sherry was hard to get all of a sudden because of prohibition, maybe. Makes sense. Um, another reason is, uh, that there was this thing called the Food and Fuel Control Act, that came around in 1917 and it urged a change in eating habits and redirected food supplies to the war effort during World War One. So like basically like conspicuous consumption was not as cool. That makes sense. Because yeah. it's like you're just being a dick now. There right, are soldiers right. that need food and you're eating turtles. So, I, so yeah, it so could it have been like one a positive of those two things. Thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, so, do so you that's think, terrapin. Do you think your characters would have eaten it? I have them either going to the assembly or okay. like wanting to go to the assembly. So I think I think Terrapin may show up. Okay. Um it's it's a good detail. It's a really good detail. Yeah. Another detail, this is um this is like Carmen's favorite detail that I've historical detail that I found while researching this book is that like mixing the salad dressing the mixing of the salad um was the man of the house's job huh so like the salad would be brought to the head of the table and he would mix the dressing interesting like in a bottle or something like he would no. shake it or like he would actually just put it on and stir it up. Well, I don't know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think I this led me down like a research hole about salad dressing. Yeah. Um and I think like like this anecdote was very short. It was in that other book I mentioned about this woman like thinking about her youth in Philadelphia. Okay. And she describes her a male relative, like a father or a grandfather, as being very expert at salad dressing. And she describes him. She said he stirred lettuce, tomatoes, hard-boiled eggs, and onion in a vast bowl with a wooden fork and spoon. So I think maybe salad dressing is mixing the salad. Interesting. Okay. That's... Huh. As opposed to mixing the dressing. Okay. 
Okay. Maybe. I don't know. And then I like looked up a bunch of stuff about, I was like doing Googling with like salad dressing in Philadelphia. And I found a lot of interesting things about salad trends. Okay. (laughs) But I didn't find much specifically about Philly. Okay. Um... Well, that is fascinating yeah. that that would be, like, a manly job. Yeah, it's like, um, it's kind of like dudes and grilling. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? That That's what salad was, I guess. Yeah, that's so interesting. <laughs> and then and also that, like, you could be good at it or not. Like, right. <laughs> like, like, there could be a range in that skill. I love that. Yeah, yeah that, that part of the meal. Also, I mean, I think... I think salad dressing was very creamy. Mm, okay. I've seen it referred to simply as mayonnaise in some places. Oh, uh, okay. So I think I don't I don't know enough to know this, but I think it's possible that salad dressing was maybe just like mayo or mayo and one other yeah. thing. Okay. So maybe it was not that hard to <laughs> <laughs> mix the dressing. I don't know. Mayo was also, like, popularized and, like, sold in jars for the first time in Philly. Oh, all right. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so we got mayo, we got terrapin, and we got salad dressing. Okay. Um, And then I didn't really delve into Scrapple enough. Oh, Um, Scrapple, yes. Yeah. Have you eaten Scrapple? Do you have feelings about Scrapple? No, I've never eaten it. Me neither. Uh, Carmen has. Okay. Carmen grew up in Allentown. Yeah. Neither of us grew up in Philly, which right, I think has made yeah. the difference. Yeah. There is a, like, you know, like a bougie, excellent brunch place near me that I'd love to go to again someday post-pandemic yeah. where they have vegan Scrapple. Ooh, okay. And it's like, I don't know if it tastes anything like Scrapple because I've been a vegetarian since I was 17, but it's basically like flavored mushrooms. Oh, well, that sounds delicious. So the one thing I know about historical Scrapple, and there is plenty more to learn, I'm sure, but the one thing I know is um, there's this sort of, like, nudge each other in the ribs Philadelphia joke. King Edward Seventh, when he was Prince of Wales, visited Philly. So I think this was in, like, the 1800s. Okay. Um... And he said to somebody, In Philadelphia, I met a large and interesting family named Scrapple and discovered a rather delicious native food they call Biddle. That's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) That was the joke. Oh, my gosh. Um, I also, like, I tried to do all this research before this episode about Philadelphia-style ice cream because, like, I wanted to get something in there that was actually delicious yeah um but i didn't find anything like extremely clear like i can tell you what do you know about this like you might since you're like into sweets and desserts like uh philly style ice cream versus french style ice cream i don't think i do i thought you were kind of gonna go with like the water ice route but that's not ice cream well confusingly water ice has like Rita's has custard on it yeah yeah um which is sort of different because 
Philadelphia-style ice cream is made without eggs. Huh. Okay. Which and, and doesn't custard have like a lot of eggs? Yeah. Okay. And French-style ice cream is made using a custard base that contains eggs. Okay. So Philadelphia-style ice cream is just, it's a little lighter. It creates an airier and more delicate texture than like gelato or French-style yeah. ice cream. And people started calling it Philadelphia-style ice cream, but much like um, the Boston cream pie situation, like there's no clear reason why. Oh, interesting. Like it didn't necessarily originate in Philly. It just got popular in Philly. Okay. Is a Franklin Fountain little trip in St. Ivy. Because St. Ivy is set in Philly, too. Oh, it is? It oh, is. good. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a fictionalized, like, I don't really name the neighborhood. It's not fictionalized. Uh-huh. I guess it's just not specified. But um, it's, like, it's it's basically Fairmount that I was thinking of as I wrote it. I just didn't name it. Um, but I, I was realizing this as I was reading through St. Ivy that I seem to be, like, really fixated on ice cream. Because I just feel like every book I write has ice cream in it. Like my my next book that I just turned into a revision of has like a struggling ice cream shop as part of the as part of the story. I was like, wow, oh I God, really just like adorable. I just like cannot get through a book without like really you know just talking about some ice cream. Apparently, yeah, that sounds like a great book. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's time for something I learned this week. All right. (laughs) So the idea of this segment is ideally people will write in and tell us about a little research hole they discovered this week or even just a little weird random thing they learned. Mm -hmm. Um, But since this podcast is not out yet, all of the something I learned this week for this season are submitted by my dad. Awesome. (laughs) So let's see what he sent me. Um, Okay. Jeopardy hosts. Do you watch Jeopardy ever? I I haven't in like many years. Okay, great. So this will mean very little. To you. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, do you know Alex Trebek died? I recently? do. Yes, I do know. Yeah, that, that was heartbreaking. Yes. Um, so, Dad says since Alex Trebek's death, a group of celebrities have been lined up to serve as week long hosts. Um, and one of the hosts is Dr. Oz. What? Yeah. Okay. Uh, my dad says, Dr. Oz's choice created controversy and a boycott petition. Um, yeah. His choice incensed both fans and former contestants, such as former Jeopardy! college champion Sam Deutsch, who tweeted, if I produced a TV show where the whole point is about testing contestants' knowledge of facts... I simply wouldn't hire a crank charlatan to host it. Well, that's, yeah, that's just Legit. makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, so did yeah. Dr. Oz get to do it? My dad didn't say. All he oh. said was that there was a petition Okay. that says Dr. Oz stands in opposition to everything that Jeopardy stands for. Let me just do one more Google. I wonder if he did it. Dr. Oz Jeopardy. 
Have you ever watched Dr. Oz? No, but I mean, no, I haven't. I feel like I've seen clips of infuriating things. Have you watched? Uh, No, I've never watched Dr. Oz, but I have. I did recently listen to a podcast about how shitty his show is. Okay. Like, it sort of knocks the science on his show. Okay. Um, It's, uh, it's called, I think it's called Maintenance Phase is the podcast. Yeah, all of the articles I'm seeing have very inflammatory headlines. (laughs) Dr. Oz gives Jeopardy a black eye column in Variety. (laughs) Dr. Oz allegedly make fun of Jeopardy contestants. Dr. Oz is a ratings loser for Jeopardy after controversy. He seems like not a good call to have Dr. Oz. Yeah. Pulls the worst ratings among post-Jebrek hosts. Yeah. So he did it. It happened. And he got bad ratings. (laughs) (laughs) Great. We've learned something. All right. Listeners, if you'd like to share something you learned this week, either while researching a project or just living your life, email me at researchholepodcast at gmail.com. I may read it in a future episode. Um, so Lori, if people want to look up your book, yeah. where are they going to find it? Where are they going to find you? Um, my website is lauriemorrisonwrites.com. It's L-A-U-R-I-E. Um, and I'm on... Twitter and Instagram at Lori L. Morrison. And yeah, I mean, books should be out there wherever books are sold. Yeah. You can just Google it. Yeah. You could look it up on bookshop.com. Yes. And that way the money goes to an independent bookstore and you could still get it online, I think. Yeah. And most, and a lot of independent bookstores, you know, you can order online and they'll ship too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Lori, thanks so much for making me think about cake a lot. Oh, my pleasure. Always. This was fun. Thanks for having me. And teaching yeah, it me was about, fun. I will try not to think too much about terrapin. <laughs> <laughs> um, good luck with your launch. Thank you. Book three. Yeah. <laughs> um, you